Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 26 of History on Fire. Quick piece of news, I just started a Patreon account for the podcast after several of you asked about it, so I got it done. If you feel in a generous mood, please check it out at patreon.com forward slash history on fire. There are a few perks that go with, depending on the level of donation, in some cases you can get uh, episodes free or ad-free episodes or access to all the old episodes that have retired, so check it out, patreon.com forward slash history on fire. Big news when it comes to both the podcast and Blue Apron, here are some plans for the future. Making me incredibly happy, Blue Apron has renewed the sponsorship for 2018, but here is the part that concerns you guys. They have asked for, not 12, for 15 episodes next year. Now, I'm mildly worried, because I already didn't know I was going to pull 12 episodes again, because the amount of work is brutal. 15, (laughs) 15 out of which 3 should be released in January. So, yeah, that should be... that would keep me busy. But again, the good news for you guys is that I should be getting free content for a lot longer, thanks to Blue Apron, so that's always much appreciated. And the beautiful thing for me is that Blue Apron is a wonderful sponsor, and the food quality, you know, the idea of receiving Blue Apron food for next year, all throughout the year, fills me with happiness, so I guess I'll just get to work, start cranking out the research, because it's worth it. So on that note, might as well mention that this episode is brought to you by BlueApron.com. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They deliver high-quality ingredients and recipes right to your door for affordable prices. So check them out and find out for yourself if you could benefit from their services. You know, that's the very easy way to support History on Fire is to take them up on their offer and get $30 off your first order by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Speaking of people who are supporting History on Fire, there's a new history podcast out there that's getting people really excited. The podcast is called How It Began, a History of the Modern World by Brad Harris. Brad has probably the highest academic credentials of any of us in the podcasting world. He has a PhD in the history of science and technology from Stanford University. 
His production quality is extremely high level. And, but it's the content that's really the heart of how it began. Each episode is uh, very well researched, beautifully written, and reveals how the most important scientific, technological, and cultural advancements in history began. So, it's a great podcast that sort of inspires you about the human potential, and uh, it's just fun to listen to. I just checked out an episode the other day about how wolves eventually evolved into dogs. It was a lot of fun to listen to. So check it out, subscribe on Apple Podcast or anywhere else you happen to listen, and check out his website at howitbegan.com. Also, as usual, big thank you to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. Check out, if you go to onnit.com forward slash history, you'll receive an automatic discount on any purchase you make on the many, many, many different Onnit products out there from uh, t-shirts to supplements to special foods to workout gear uh, history on fire ready to run producer savannah m is um, a sponsored athlete through on it and uh, she's about to receive her kettlebells and other gear for her working out so check them out They're really it's impossible to even begin describe the variety of stuff out there see if there's anything that can be useful to you and of course, also Datsusara with computer bags, backpacks, travel bags, pretty much anything that you can make with textiles and hemp, particularly when it comes to bags, they have it and they are really good. They are, are pretty much the only bags I ever use. So check them out at dsgear.com. That's again dsgear.com. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. At the end of the episode, more about how to support the show, make sure it stays viable, plus future plans for upcoming episodes. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. If you are disturbed by racial slurs, let me warn you that this may not be the series for you. There's going to be quite a few of them in this series. Not because I like using them, but because I'll be quoting several people living at the turn between the 1800s and the 1900s, when blatant racism was the norm. So, with this warning in mind, let's get the ball rolling. The New York Times has this to say about the lead character in this series. His story is one of the great dramas, not just of American sports, but of all American history. Our time frame is, as I mentioned, the late 1800s and early 1900s in the United States. So let's provide some quick context. By the end of the 1800s, the federal government had long abandoned reconstruction and was busy turning a blind eye, as in the South efforts were well underway to roll back the reforms that were implemented at the end of the Civil War, and some serious efforts were underway to reimpose white supremacy. So white supremacy was returning to the South with a vengeance. Jim Crow was in full swing. Segregation was the law of the land. 
This was about 50 years before Jackie Robinson challenged segregation in baseball. But long before Jackie Robinson, there was Jack Johnson. Now, this was a time when lynching was a fairly common event. Any black man in the South not acting in a subservient manner could find himself dangling from a tree. Even African-American leaders like Booker T. Washington preached that accepting segregation, keeping one's head down, and working hard were the best options for black people. Well, Jack Johnson clearly didn't get the memo. At this time when simply looking a white man in the eyes or talking to a white woman could get a black man lynched, Jack Johnson made a living beating the hell out of white men in the ring and didn't bother hiding his relationships with women of all colors. Living defiantly, as if prejudice didn't exist, he felt, was the best way to defeat racism. Those were also the days when boxing was, along with baseball, the most popular sport in America bar none. Everyone looked at the heavyweight champion of the world as the pinnacle of masculinity, and custom dictated that no black person should be given a chance to fight for this honor, because had they won, it would have been too much of a challenge to the prevailing white supremacist ideologies of the day, holding that white people were superior to blacks in every meaningful way. So Jack Johnson's story ended up being about much more than just boxing. Popular reactions to his careers led to riots breaking out in 50 cities throughout the nation that ended up killing lots of people. So even if you could care less about boxing, I would invite you to give this story a chance, because it truly is a powerful one. To give you a little bit of flavor for the man we'll be dealing with, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. When I told... Dan Carlin, I was going to cover Jack Johnson. He immediately told me his favorite Jack Johnson story, which also happens to be my own. Of course, by the way, I'm mentioning Dan Carlin, assuming that you guys all know who he is. He's the undisputed king of historical podcasting, so for just the three of you who didn't know, now you do. So when I was talking with Dan, he immediately knew, of course, what Jack Johnson was. He liked the story very much. And the particular anecdote he was telling me was, uh, it goes something like this. It goes that once in Georgia, a policeman stopped Jack Johnson for speeding in his car. And the cop approached him and said, where are you going so fast, boy? This is going to cost you $50. Now, this was back in the day when you could still pay for your speeding ticket on the spot in cash. So Johnson pulled up a large stack of cash and handed the policeman $100. And the cop tried to protest, saying, I don't have that kind of change on me. But Johnson just waved him off. He said, I will be coming back the same way in a few hours, and I'll be driving the same speed. So I'm I'm just paying you in advance. This, I think, tells you much of what you need to know about Jack Johnson's personality. The man was born in Galveston, Texas in 1878, right after the end of Reconstruction. 
His name at birth was John Arthur Johnson. His parents, both of his parents actually, had been slaves. By the time Jack Johnson was born, his father was now a school janitor and his mom worked as a dishwasher. Altogether, they had six kids. His father had been a slave in Maryland, and according to some sources at least, he had had some experience with fighting by serving as entertainment for wealthy slave owners who enjoyed watching slaves fight one another. Jack Johnson loved his father, despite the fact that in many ways he represented everything that Jack would never be. His father was a hard worker, very religious, he never stepped out of line. And let's just say that Jack would not grow up following his father's footsteps. Jack had only five years of schooling before he quit, but he did learn how to read and write. And despite this fairly limited formal education, he would end up reading a whole lot later in life and was clearly very smart. As a kid, he began working, sweeping classrooms, taking care of horses, and a few other odd jobs. Some sources tell us that on one occasion a horse kicked him, breaking his leg, but he was lucky that the horse broke the femur and not the knee, which made it a little easier to recover well, or none of the story I'm about to tell you would have ever happened. The neighborhood he grew up in was a monstrously poor one, But contrary to what one may imagine, there wasn't a whole lot of racial segregation. As Johnson himself says, As I grew up, the white boys were my friends and my pals. I ate with them, played with them, and slept at their homes. Their mothers gave me cookies, and I ate at their tables. No one ever taught me that white men were superior to me. Now, let's be clear. There was plenty of racial segregation just about anywhere, but Jack's experience was unique in that he didn't have to deal with it much at all growing up. Circumstances, however, more than made up for this later in life when he will deal with a whole lot of prejudice, racism, and segregation. Growing up, Jack was a bit of a wimp as a kid and he avoided fights at all costs. It it got downright embarrassing because his sisters would have to protect him and sometimes fight for him. Oddly enough, there's uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, one of the greatest boxers of all times, tells a nearly identical story about his early days. Sugar Ray said, I would avoid fighting even if I had to take the short end. I would even apologize. I got to be known as a coward, and my sisters used to fight for me. Now, I'm sure a psychologist would have a field day with the stories of legendary fighters who started out as terrified kids who would do anything to run away from fights. But I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to run too far with this. As far as Jack Johnson is concerned, in one occasion his mom, in some versions of the story, his grandmother in other versions of the story, some elderly female figure told him he would have to fight a boy who had just punched him. And this lady, whether it was his mom or not, said, If you do not weep willy, I shall weep you myself. So with his back against the wall, 
Jack had to fight, and surprising everyone, including himself, he won the fight, and for the first time he experienced the joy of coming out of a battle for supremacy as the top dog. Willie, whoever Willie was, was the first, but definitely not the last, to fall under Jack Johnson's blows. One story that Jack Johnson would later tell about his childhood was that when he was about 12 years old, he ran away from home to meet his hero was an Irish con man named Steve Brody. The story goes that Jack hid on a ship as a stowaway, landed in New York. He managed, he acted as if he was going to jump and kill himself, prompting some of passerbys to throw him a dollar and say, come on, don't do it, and he raised a little money the way. So with that, he did supposedly meet Brody and then went back to Texas. Many people speculate that none of this happened, that the story was entirely made up, but in many ways it fits his personality. Jack would never be particularly opposed to mixing legend and reality, so we should take anything he said for which we have no proof with a grain of salt. The one thing that it is true is that he could rarely stay in one place, whether a town or a job. He, Since he was a young teenager, he began running off for adventures around the countries. He carried bags in hotels, he swept barber shops, he moved bales of cottons onto ships. He hated most of these jobs, but during this time he began to train a little boxing on the side. Now, around... In the 1880s, the heavyweight champion was John L. Sullivan, and his image was pretty much in every saloon in the United States. Author Geoffrey Ward writes the following. He said, Laboring men and white-collar workers alike envied him his strength and independence, admired his courage, and made allowances for his successes. Sullivan's moustache portrait hung everywhere men gathered. Small boys followed him from saloon to saloon. Their fathers read about his feats in the pink pages of the National Police Gazette. And Sullivan was the first to sort of pump up the status of heavyweight champion by saying that, you know, reinforcing this idea that the heavyweight champion was the strongest man in the world. So whoever could claim that title had literally climbed to the pinnacle of masculinity. So, And after winning the title, Sullivan established a precedent that many others would follow. He said, and again, forgive some of the language that will follow, but these are boxers talking and they are not exactly known for being always in expressing themselves in the most polite, mellow way. Sullivan said, I can beat any son of a bitch in the world but I will never fight a Negro. I never have and never shall. And in another occasion, he said, any fighter would get into the same ring with a nigger loses my respect. I believe it is degrading for a white man to box a Negro. So he started this idea that the heavyweight champion had to be white. So blacks could be allowed to fight white people, but not for the title. Again, author Jeffrey Ward says, In turn of the 20th century America, 
it was unthinkable that a black man might win that most exalted crown, and the best way to ensure that such a thing never happened was to keep all blacks from contending for it. So, you get the idea. Sullivan was the first to establish what was known as the color line, basically not allowing uh, black fighters to fight for the title. Now, theoretically speaking, inside the ropes of the boxing ring was the ultimate place for equality. Everywhere else, the deck could be stacked against you, in a way preventing a truly equal contest. You know, one of the annoying things about intellectual arguments is that they never end since both sides regularly claim to have won the debate. But in the boxing ring, you know, the primitive beauty of the sweet science is its undeniable results. Physicality allows for a contest with objective results. Same thing in some way had been said about war. During the Civil War, a Southern congressman had said that if black men make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. Meaning, you know, if at a time when there was all, particularly in the South, there was all this hype about being a soldier, which meant that you are brave, you are tough, you possess all these great qualities. Well, the whole theory of, slave, of slavery was based on the notion that black people should be slaves because they were inferior. They were incapable of developing these higher qualities. Well, if, however, black people could serve in the army and could prove they could be just as brave and serve just as well as people of any other color, then the whole found theoretical foundation of slavery would collapse. In some way, the same thing could be said about the ring. If in an athletic context, they could come up on top, well, then the whole idea that we, white people, we are the superior race kind of thing, that would fall on its face. So what Sullivan started was to use the color line to deny this equality and avoid the embarrassing possibility that the prevailing racial theories of the days would be proven wrong. This also became a very convenient way for white heavyweight champions to avoid fighting some very tough challengers. By refusing to allow a black man to step into a contest where he could prove himself better, it was a safe bet. You know, why take a chance? Why be the guy who loses to the black fighter and uh, become a source of shame for most white people? Because once they were, if they were allowed to step in, then the outside world would disappear. All you would have left in the ring is just two men stripped to the bare minimum, using their minds and bodies to prevail. And that could not be allowed. White supremacists were quite busy trying to make sure that black people, quote-unquote, learn their place, as they would have said which is to say, learn to embrace an inferior status. One way to do this was by unleashing very public violence against anyone stepping out of line. On average, in the 1890s, there were about 150 lynchings per year. Between 1901 and 1910, some 846 people were lynched in the United States, of which 750 were black. 
So clearly, if people were willing to kill in the name of white supremacy, they weren't going to take chances in allowing a black fighter the option of winning the most coveted title in combat sports. But this was something that Johnson didn't have to worry about yet. You know, he was in the late 1800s, he was still a young man, a teenager, but in 1894, around 16 years old, Johnson left for New York and worked at a stable there. He became then a janitor in a boxing gym, and he would spar as often as he could. Went back home to Texas and got into a fight with a guy who had accused him of having turned him to authorities during over some gambling. The man who had accused him was much older and tougher, but Honor demanded that he steps up to him, so they squared up at the docks with the crowd watching, and Jack Johnson demolished this opponent. So this taste of victory, the ecstasy that comes from crushing a big scary man trying to take his head off, giving the idea that he could perhaps make a living boxing. He had a fight with a certain John Lee, which was broken up by police, so then the crowd dispersed, they all gathered together back to the beach. He won the fight and made an amazing sum of a dollar fifty on that. Technically it was not a pro fight, but he did get paid. Now the line between pro fights and not pro fights was very fine, considering that the majority of fights were unregulated. In many cases, the results of some of his bouts were never reported since, well, actually not just his bouts, of anybody's bouts were not reported since you could get in trouble with the law by having pro fights. Johnson gained a little money and fighting experience by participating in a rather curious kind of combat event known as the Battle Royal, this is a, well, I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm just going to tell you what it is first. Basically, what you would have is a crowd of white guys cheering while six, seven, eight young black kids, maybe teenagers at most, would beat each other up. The last one standing would get a cash prize of a few coins. The obvious message behind this was, you know, white people would throw your bone if you fought other black people. And to make it more humiliating, sometimes they would have it as just some silly sideshow where they would pit, you know, a one-legged black boys against one another or have them fight blindfolded. Author Randy Roberts says, these were events without winners, only losers. The pennies didn't pay for the lost dignity. Their sole function was to reinforce racial stereotypes. Like the blacks in ministerial shows, blacks in battle royals conform to white expectations. This is one of the very few cases when Jack Johnson would ever conform to white expectations. In one of these events, he KO'd several other black young fighters and walked away with a little cash. Cash and fighting also mixed in another type of carnival event. One source tells us that a certain Bob Tomlinson, Thompson in some version, who knows the exact spelling of the guy's last name, because I've seen several. This guy was a 235-pound pro boxer traveling through Texas in 1897 as part of a circus. He would challenge spectators to a fight, 
and everyone could pay 50 cents to see if they could last four rounds. If they could last four rounds, they would be paid five dollars. But pretty much nobody lasted four rounds, because he would knock them all out. You know, the difference between a trained professional fighter and the average tough guy is usually big enough that nobody could collect the five dollars. Johnson at this time was only about 160 pounds, so he was like 75 pounds less than uh, than Thompson. But he did step up, and he was able to last the four rounds, taking some damage, but mostly doing well. And during the fight, he displayed one of what would be one of his signature moves. He He would smile during the match. He would chat with the audience. He basically tried to show that nobody could touch him and that he was above the efforts of someone trying to KO him. It was... It wasn't entirely true in this particular fight since he did take some damage, but in a case of fake it till you make it, Johnson began adopting the same persona that he would later master in the ring. He started boxing more and more regularly, and would earn more in one night fighting other black fighters than his father would earn in a whole week. He, in order to refine his craft, he became a sparring partner for some top pro boxers of the day. One was a certain Joe Walcott, known as the Barbados Demon. Now that's a cool nickname right there. And Walcott taught him quite a bit. Um, he would often, Johnson would often get arrested for roaming the streets in small towns who got kicked out of town. This was kind of part of his life. As I mentioned, much of boxing had no was not regulated and was often an illegal business. There were usually no boxing commissions, no ringside doctors. Some fights were fixed. Sometimes fights would take place in barges or in fields far away from the law. In some states, they were just completely illegal, and yet it was super popular. In Johnson's home state of Texas, for example, it was illegal but often tolerated. The same way as prostitution had been officially legal but largely tolerated until the late 1800s. In the same way that had been common since at least the times of the Roman Empire and probably much earlier than that, in the late 1800s in the US, poor women used their bodies for the entertainment of paying customers by selling sex. Poor men used their bodies for the entertainment of paying customers by selling violence. You know, the twin pillars of entertainment, sex and violence, where there was kind of a gender division where young poor women would sell sex, young poor men would sell violence. Some reformers tried to have boxing laws enforced. In 1893, for example, the Nation magazine said that boxing audience, I quote, consist almost always of the scourings of human society, gamblers, thieves, drunkards, and bullies. The pugilists themselves are generally persons whose manners and morals are a disgrace to our civilization. You get the picture. So, one technicality to get around some of the bans was that even where prize fighting was illegal, it was okay if no money was paid. So you could have a boxing exhibition, you could not have a professional event where fighters were paid. 
and of course it was easy to pretend that nobody was paid, but you would pay fighters under the table. On November 1st, 1898, Johnson collected his official pro-win via KO in the second round against a certain Charlie Brooks. Three weeks later, he scored another KO. He tasted defeat for the first time against another African-American boxer named John Haynes, better known as Klondike. They would eventually have three fights, Klondike winning the first, then a draw, until finally Johnson won the third encounter. Now, don't worry, I won't take you through a detailed narration of all of Jack Johnson's fights, since there are nearly a hundred of them. I'm just going to focus on the highlights here. On a personal level, Johnson had gotten into a relationship with a a young black woman named Mary Austin. He would usually introduce her as his wife, but they were probably never formally married. Later on in his life, he would usually introduce any woman he would be with as his wife, which was particularly interesting since, due to his promiscuous tendency in later years, there would often be multiple Mrs. Johnson at the same time, but usually he wasn't really married to the majority of them. He will end up married three times, but not yet. In the year 1900, major catastrophe hit his hometown of Galveston. On September 8th of the year 1900, Jack Johnson's home city was hit with 145 miles an hour winds. They were part of a Category 4 storm. Before the storm had passed, or, or rather by the time the storm had passed, it would kill thousands. No one is sure exactly how many. One of the estimates say that it may have killed at least 20% of the people in town. One every five people, in other words, would die in this storm. Destroyed almost 4,000 homes, including Johnson's family home. But Johnson considered himself lucky that he was one of the few people in town who didn't lose any family member. The storm dwarfed in size modern-day Hurricane Katrina. So many corpses were found on the streets afterwards that it was impossible to bury them, so they were dumped at sea. But the currents would dump them right back on the beach. So local people organized, they set up fires on the beach to burn the bodies. And it took weeks for all of the bodies to actually be burned. The city would give free whiskey to poor guys doing the work of setting on fire their neighbors, their friends, and their fellow citizens, and making sure that their bodies were consumed. In his autobiography, Johnson tells the story of these terrible events and says that in the immediate aftermath of the storm, some people with boats were gouging people to give them a a ride to safety. So Johnson tells that he used some of his fighting skills to force these people with boats to give rights to those who couldn't afford them. Now, as a result of this, the boxing scene in Galveston was pretty much dying. Johnson wouldn't be fighting there much longer. An exception to this took place in 1901, when an old veteran named Joe Choinsky came to Galveston to fight Johnson. 
Shoinsky, by the way, I'm taking a wild guess on how to pronounce his last name. I have no idea. It's C-H-O-Y-N-S-K-I, Shoinsky. Sound about right, but what do I know? I'm a crazy Italian, so take my English pronunciation for what it is. Shoinsky was a Jewish boxer, which is kind of funny today because you don't really hear of too many Jewish boxers today. But back at that time, Jewish people were often poor and discriminated against. And usually the combination of poverty and discrimination was breeding grounds for athletes in combat sports. So there were quite a few Jewish boxers at the time. You know, you can almost trace an ethnic group's social mobility through boxing. You know, most people don't want their kids to get into a profession in which they get their brains get beaten to a mush. So boxing has traditionally been poor people's sport. Um, you know, as soon as somebody makes money, as soon as they have hopes that they can, their kids can get an education and make money in other ways, they usually don't want them to be involved in boxing. So today you don't really see exactly a whole lot of Jewish boxers. But back then, different story. Now, during this fight, Johnson showed some talent. In particular, he used a technique of blocking some of the strikes by hitting his opponent's bicep, which was both unusual and effective. But Trinsky had been around a long time. He was a serious veteran, and so he did manage to knock out Johnson in round three with a left hook to the temple. And right in that moment, the Texas Rangers arrived and arrested both men for participating in an illegal fight. The organizers were arguing that the fight was legal, since officially no one was paid. Johnson was paid under the table, and Chowinski received a salary to teach boxing at the club, and they said, oh, we just asked him to spar for a scientific exhibition. But the authorities didn't buy it, and they were right, of course, because this was a professional fight. Bail was set at $5,000, which might as well have been a million dollars since neither man was even close to being able to afford it. So for the next few days, the judge wanted a conviction and the grand jury wanted to free them kept clashing. Took a while for the grand jury to sort this out, but this turned out to be a big favor to Jack Johnson. For 23 days, in fact, some sources say 28, some 24, so somewhere in there, slightly less than a month, Johnson was in jail with Chowinski. Now, there was no bad blood to, to, to the knockout. You know, they, they understood this is a sport, it is what it is. So they were now locked up behind bars together, and they actually became friends with Chowinski teaching him like, he's like, oh, we have nothing else to do. We are both locked up here. Might as well. I'll teach you some tricks. Trinsky was very impressed with Johnson. He said, uh, a man who can move like you should never have to take a punch. And so he proceeded to teach him all his tricks, particularly about defensive boxing. And considering that Johnson will later remember as one of the greatest defensive boxers of all time, it is hard to underestimate the importance of those 23 days of studying daily with Chowinski. Johnson would always say that the time with Chowinski was the key to his success in boxing. 
he would that's when the time when he began to develop his own idiosyncratic style you know big on clinches big on counterpunching and exploiting their opponent his opponent's mistakes not a brawling style you know very relaxed so that he could last many rounds not in a hurry for a KO even though he had considerable punching power referee Ed Smith would later say of Johnson's style Jack presents ability that is impossible to rate too highly and next to impossible to match then now and possibly ever and uh, Damon Ronian said no greater defensive fighter than Johnson ever lived so that gave you an idea of how good Johnson became this all seemed to me is like that you cannot make this stuff up it's perfect for a movie right? you, you have the fight you have uh, one guy knocks out the other and then they lock both of them up in the same cell and these guys decide ah, okay fine fight is over now let's become friends and and the older veteran decides to teach the young kid all of his secrets I mean this is like this is a novel right this is not the real deal well turns out all sources tell the story this is very well recorded so turns out it is a real story it's just an amazing one but in any case after this experience johnson would move to travel around a lot he lived in memphis for a while chicago boston california constantly looking for better opponents and more money he would regularly get into fights with the guards on the trains because he never had enough money for tickets so if he was busted and they started swinging their clubs for his head, he would get some free training that way. In Chicago once, he ran out of money and nearly froze. Uh, he was taken in by a fellow boxer named Frank Childs. So for a second there, it looked like Childs was this big, nice guy. But shortly thereafter, Childs changed his mind and kicked him out when he needed room for a cousin in some version of the story for his wife who came to visit. Either way, being thrown out in the cold really got Johnson mad. So in 1902, Johnson had a chance at revenge when he was signed for a fight against this very same Frank Childs and he promptly knocked him out. Johnson would be known to be ridiculously generous to friends and even strangers, but would also be known for holding on to a grudge and being completely unforgiving against his enemies. After kicking him out, Childs was definitely in this latter category. As far as the big picture of boxing goes, in 1892, Jim Corbett had taken the title from Sullivan using a more defensive style and he was praised by journalists as a smart strategic boxer when johnson would use a very similar style they say that he was lazy and a coward that his behavior was typical of black people despite this obvious hypocrisy johnson kept winning by 1902 he had won lots of fights against both white and black boxers his official record probably doesn't reflect many contests he had had that just never made it in the record books, because as I mentioned, regulation was tenuous at best. Many boxing historians estimate that he probably had 40 more wins than he's officially credited for at this time. But despite now making money, 
what Johnson wanted was a shot at the heavyweight championship that by 1899 had been won by a certain Jim Jeffries. Jeffries had previously fought and beaten black fighters, but as champion he refused to fight a black challenger. He said he would quit boxing once he ran out of white challengers. When people brought up the name of Johnson, say, hey, that guy is a good contender, what do you think? Jeffrey said, this fellow Johnson is a fair fighter, but he's a black, and for that reason I will never fight him. He said if he wasn't champion, he would fight him, but that black people should never have the option to fight for a title. Again, I quote from Jeffries, when there are no white men left to fight, I will quit the business. I'm determined not to take a chance of losing the championship to a Negro. But if Jim didn't want to risk the championship against a black fighter, his brother, Jack Jeffries, who wasn't champion, was willing to use victories over black fighters as stepping stones in his own career. So Jack Johnson had been picked by Jeffries' handlers because they thought that they could handle him. Well, they were wrong. On May 16, 1902, a fight was organized between Jack Johnson and Jack Jeffries, the brother of the gym, the current champion, in Los Angeles. Displaying the racism that characterized those days, the LA Times described Jack Jeffries as a Greek god, while they described Jack Johnson as a good-natured black animal. The LA Times also said that Johnson looked too black to have the heart of a fighter. Johnson, it's almost like he didn't hear this stuff. He clearly enjoyed provoking the rage of racists. He didn't keep his head down, did his work and hoped to be allowed to do his job in peace, much like Joe Lewis would later do. He would regularly do the exact opposite. For example, legend holds that during a particular match, Johnson kept talking to his white girlfriend in the front row, asking her when he should KO his opponent. And she would name a round, and he would later ask what round it is, and when the round she had requested arrived, then he would KO the opponent, making it look like he had been toying the entire time. Now, maybe this is a legend, maybe not. Either way, Johnson clearly had fun flaunting his individuality. Most boxers at this time would walk to the ring in black and white colors. The Irish, perhaps, would add a little green. But during this fight against Jack Jeffries, Johnson walked up to the ring wearing bright, bright pink. The LA Times described it as one of those screaming, belligerent pinks. <laughs> now... Only some serious tough fighters can get away with stuff like that. It kind of reminds me of uh, Judo Jean LaBelle, a legend of grappling and an early pioneer of mixed martial arts, who would often sport a pink kimono. But you know, if you are Jean LaBelle, no one says a word, because you are tough as hell. And if you are Jack Johnson, you just shut down the critics with your performance. So... If you want to wear pink, you wear pink, because nobody's going to say a word. 
In this fight, Johnson played with Jack Jeffries for five rounds and eventually knocked him out. And in a gesture that sportsmanship, probably, or just flat out humiliating his opponent, possibly, he picked him up from the ground and carried him to his corner. Uh, the heavyweight champion, the brother of the man he just defeated, Jim Jeffries, was at ringside. And Johnson told him, hey, if you want some, I have more for you. I can, I can knock you out as well. Jeffries had won the title by knocking out Jim Corbett twice, which was great revenge since as a young man he had visited Corbett's camp and applied for a job as sparring partner, but was instead offered only a job to sweep the floor instead. Jeffries was the source of lots of legends. It was said that he had a grizzly bear as a pet, that he could break someone's hand by shaking it, and that once he had drunk a whole case of whiskey in two days to cure himself of pneumonia. Now, I'm no medical doctor, but that does not sound like the best cure ever, but in any case, I'll shut up. Jeffries was supposed to be a freak athlete. He could run... 100 yards in barely over 10 seconds and could jump uh, and could high jump over 6 feet former champion Jim Corbett said of his ungodly chin nobody can ever hurt him not even with an axe but as mad as the champion was over Jack Johnson beating his brother he had no interest accepting the challenge of a black fighter so for the time being, Johnson was stuck, padding his resume, fighting mid-level guys. In 1902, uh, he scored a victory over a certain George Gardner, which was turned out to be a much harder fight than it should have been. He fought through 20 rounds to a decision. But he had good reasons. He had been very feverish and super sick in the days before the fight. For several days prior to the fight, he had not been able to eat anything except water and crackers, but he was afraid of losing money and the chance, so he fought anyway, and somehow, probably because he was so superior to his opponent, he managed to win anyway. In 1903, he faced a certain Denver Ed Martin for the quote-unquote World Colored Heavyweight Championship which means, you know, the, the title that was reserved only for black fighters. At this time, Johnson was only 180 pounds, and his opponent was over 20 pounds heavier. Despite this, Johnson knocked Martin down multiple times and easily won the decision. Since the top heavyweight boxer, white heavyweight boxer, drew the color line and didn't allow black boxers to challenge for the title, then it would have been logical to assume that Johnson had reached the highest goal he could legitimately aspire to. You know, he won the, he was now recognized as the best black fighter in the world, but he would never be given a shot at fighting for the heavyweight championship. So, you know, this is it. Okay, good job, you have done it, you have climbed as high as you can. But as we will see, Jack Johnson did not become a legend by sticking to realistic goals and living within the rules. In any case, for the time being, he went on to defend this uh, World Color Heavyweight Championship a total of 17 times. 
he did manage to beat the three top other black fighters of the day, Sam McVeigh, Joe Jeanette, and Sam Langford. These were some of the very best boxers of the era, but just like Johnson, they have been prevented from fighting for the title to, due to Jeffries refusing to face black fighters. After their first encounter, Johnson avoided Langford like the plague, because he beat him once, but he knew that he was the toughest challenger out there, so he tried to avoid having to fight him again. In the meantime, back to his personal life, he he moved in with his lady. Some, maybe she was still Mary Austin, maybe they had already split and it was a new one. Either case, with a black woman, he moved into an old white neighborhood in Bakersfield. His manager told him that this was a dangerous move and that they were clearly getting above themselves in this world, so Johnson fired him. Johnson would always have a complicated relationship with his managers. He would hire them and fire them at amazing speed. Many of the managers saw boxers, and black ones in particular, as brutes who couldn't make good decisions, so they insisted on making for them all the decisions about business and ring strategy. But Johnson believed he could make good choices for himself, hence the perpetual conflict. Speaking of Johnson's choice to try to live in a white neighborhood, a famous African-American leader, possibly the most famous African-American leader of this time, Booker T. Washington, had argued that accepting segregation and focusing on economic improvement was best for black people. He basically argued that blacks needed to work with the nice racists. Now, nice racists? What does that even mean? Well, the difference between the quote-unquote nice racists and the mean racists was that mean racists hated you no matter what. Nice racists were willing to help you as long as you play a subservient role. You know, if you, if you try to claim civil rights or equality, you just anger these guys and they would not help you at all. So... As a result, Booker T. Washington's whole strategy was to argue that blacks should act in a humble manner, keep their heads down, work hard, be subservient to whites, in the hopes that rich white people would throw them a bone. So not surprisingly, Jack Johnson was smoke in Booker T. Washington's eyes. He represented the exact opposite of what he advocated. Author Randy Roberts write, other black leaders spoke cautiously. Johnson, however, moved boldly, refusing to maneuver around obstacles or to check his speed. He would live by his own rules or not at all. That's a great line right there. He would live by his own rules or not at all. Roberts continues, In so doing, Johnson threatened order. He embodied the white man's nightmare of racial chaos. Johnson, as much as Booker T. Washington didn't like Johnson, Johnson didn't like Booker T. either. He argued that he was just not brave. He believed that the best way to defeat prejudice was to live as if prejudice didn't exist. I'll read you his exact quote in, uh, in Johnson's own words. He said, I found no better way of avoiding racial prejudice 
than to act in my relations with people of other races as if prejudice did not exist. Imagine that for a second. This is the turn of the century. Barely one generation removed from slavery. Segregation is the rule in most states. Blatant discrimination is the norm. How can anyone live as if prejudice didn't exist? Johnson was clearly a unique individual for adopting this as his philosophy of life. Author Randy Roberts continues, Certainly there was no other famous black American of his day who so utterly resisted the racial barriers, no other who so openly assaulted white middle-class attitudes. Without a doubt, his reckless and disorderly private life was the price he paid for the flawless control he, demonstrate, he would demonstrate publicly. In public, insults never manage to make him stop smiling. You know, any good boxer learns to never show his opponent when he's hurt. If you get hit hard, you put on a poker face and act as if nothing happened. I'm sure Johnson did the same thing with all the racism that he faced. He would smile and act as if it didn't bother him. And maybe he was, he was able to convince himself he really didn't bother him and kept some of it at bay. But I'm also sure that some of it got to him, even when he didn't show it. He, he would have just not been human otherwise. When he moved to Philadelphia, Johnson found this new flame. Apparently, Mary Austin had cheated on him, so he replaced her with African-American prostitute Clara Kerr. He loved her a lot, but according to Johnson, she was unfaithful and left him for a horse trainer and a gambler, and together they stole some of Johnson's money. Showing that despite his many faults, Johnson could be generous and occasionally forgiving, years later, when he made more money, Johnson received news that Clara was in jail on a murder charge, that she had gunned down an abusive lover trying to kill her. So Johnson hired a lawyer, got her off, and lent her money to start her own business upon release from prison. But for the time being, Clara Kerr had just run off with a friend of his. And after this, Johnson began openly dating white women. This would drive lots of white supremacists crazy. There was a huge taboo over black men sleeping with white women. In many states, there was an easy path to lynching. But he was also criticized by some black people for the fact that he stopped dating women of his own ethnicity and preferred white women. He explained that this was because black women had treated him poorly. He said, The heartaches which Mary Austin and Clara Kerr had caused me led me to forswear colored women and to determine that my lot henceforth would be cast only with white women. In another quote he stated, I didn't court white women because I thought I was too good for the others, like they said. It was just that they always treated me better. See, his complaint about black women cheating on him is kind of funny, considering that Johnson was sexually loyal to no woman. But, you know, double standards and all. Now, it 
what we just heard from Johnson Leaps could be true, or it could be that the prevailing emphasis as uh, white as beautiful got into Johnson's head and he internalized some of the standards of beauty as his own. Over time, this would be one of his choices that most inflamed public opinion. Some white people go crazy over this and repeatedly demand that he be lynched. The black critique of Johnson taking white women as lovers came mainly from the black middle and upper middle class. Poor black people usually didn't see it that way. They saw Johnson as challenging the taboos imposed by whites about what black people could and could not do. So his affairs with white women were seen by them as acts of rebellion. Johnson's own feelings about the white ladies he would surround himself from this time on were probably ambivalent. On one hand, they were objects of conquest. In at least some cases, he really loved them. But it was a complex, dysfunctional love at times. Author Randy Roberts writes, To expect his attitude to be anything other than ambivalent would ignore the complexity of the man or the institution. You know, there were times when he, he drank too much and in more than one occasion he was physically abusive. Which is something that, you know, we can't justify no matter how we spin it. That just flat out bad. Now, to be entirely fair, and this is not a justification but providing explanation for the contest, most of the ladies he was with were often physically abusive with him as well, so they were not exactly innocent either. Etta, one of his three wives, as we'll run into her character later, Etta once hit Johnson with a chair because he had no warned her that someone was coming over to visit, so she had stepped out of the dressing room naked, and she got mad and so smashed the chair on his head. A certain Belle Schreiber, also a prominent figure later in Johnson's life, had hit him multiple times. According to some sources, a lady once had, sh- had uh, used a gun to shoot him in the foot. So, you know, again, he was on the receiving ends of violence from several of these women, but he was also the one dishing it out as well. So this is obviously one of the most disturbing parts of the Johnson story. But back to his boxing. Eventually, by the end of 1903, after beating every possible fighter that he was allowed to fight, let's say, Many began suggesting that he should fight for the title. Even the LA Times, which was normally super racist, argued that Johnson had earned his shot. The LA Times wrote, When they meet, meaning Johnson and Jeffries, when they meet, the world will see a battle before which the gladiator combats of ancient Rome peel into childish insignificance. Admit they someday will. It is up to Jeffries to say when. Well, Jeffries didn't want to say when. He just kept saying no. Uh, Johnson accused him of hiding behind the color line rather than fight the legitimate number one contender. And in one occasion, they actually ran into each other in a San Francisco saloon in 1904. And Johnson again challenged Jeffries. Say, hey, give me my title fight. I've earned it. Jeffries counter by putting $2,500 on the bar and say, 
he would fight Johnson, but in the cellar, at the bottom there in the canteen alone, and if Johnson could make it back up the stairs, then he could keep the money. Johnson resisted the pressure of all the onlookers yelling that he was a coward if he didn't accept, and he just replied, I ain't a cellar fighter, and walked out. You know, even had he won, he wouldn't have gotten what he wanted, which was a chance to fight for the title. But Jeffries just wasn't about to give him that chance, not now or ever if he could help it. So in 1905, after saying beating all challengers, or so Jeffries said, he decided to retire to his farm in California and grow alfalfa. He said, I've got all the money I want, there's nobody to fight me. To hell with this business, and the championship too. Now, this was a first. It had never happened that the reigning heavyweight champion would retire undefeated. Champions didn't retire. They lost the title in the ring. You know, the old king had to be killed by the new one. That's how it had always been. So people didn't know what to make of Jeffries retiring. Jeffries had the solution for the championship, though. He said he would referee a fight between two white challengers, and the heavyweight title would go to the winner. One of the challengers was a guy Johnson had fought earlier in 1905. Marvin Hart, before their fight, had said he didn't dislike Johnson in particular. He just disliked all blacks. He had declared, before the 20th round is reached, and probably several rounds before, there will be a nigger prostrate on the canvas. Johnson, according to Most, had dominated the fight on points, but he had fought too defensively. So, in a very questionable decision, the fight was given to Hart. According to Johnson, there was nothing questionable about the decision. It was just a clear-cut robbery, and the ref had been bought by people who had money on the fight. But no matter whether it had been a robbery or not, this defeat, at least on paper, made it easier to dismiss Johnson from any talk of a title shot. And so Marvin Hart fought Jack Root for the title, and he won. Two years later, however, Hart would lose to a Canadian named Noah Brusso, who fought under the name of Tommy Burns. Burns gave Johnson a little hope, because he said he would not draw the color line. But first he wanted to fight all the white challengers, and then and only then he would think about fighting black boxers. So Johnson was still out in the cold with only a vague hope that maybe Burns would fight him someday. So here he was, stuck in limbo, unable to fight for the championship. Not surprisingly, he was super frustrated and fairly angry. So in all of the fights he took around this time, he would usually take it easy against black opponents, just he would coast to a decision without hurting them too much, but he would trash his white opponents in brutal fashion. Among the many bouts of this frustrating phase of his career, one stands out for its hilarious qualities. In Philadelphia, he fought a certain Joe Grimm, described by author Jeffrey Ward as one of the oddest figures in boxing history. Joe Grimm's real name was Saverio Giannone, 
He was an Italian immigrant with zero legitimate boxing skills. By the end of his career, he lost the overwhelming majority of the matches he participated in. Despite this, he had lots of fans. Now, why, you may ask, would someone with no discernible skills have legions of fans? Because of insane ability to take punishment without getting knocked out. He was known as the Iron Man, and his line that he always used was I am Joe Grimm and I fear no man. Lots of the top heavyweight fighters of the day fought him, and of course beat him, but without being able to knock him out. So Johnson ended up fighting him, and plenty of Italians were there in attendance to see their hero, not to see if he would win, because there was no chance of that, but if he could finish the six rounds of the match and avoid the knockout. So the real excitement was to see if Grimm's iron skull could withstand the punches of the best in the business. And those who bet on Grimm nearly always won. In this match, Grimm never even touched Johnson. Johnson kept dropping him, but Grimm kept getting back up. Johnson dropped him twice in the first round, once in the fourth, five times in the fifth, and nine times in the sixth round for a total of 17 knockdowns. After the last one, Grimm was out cold for five minutes, but he got dropped only six seconds before the bell, so it didn't count. And as soon as he was able to stand again, he hanged from the ropes and shouted his signature line, My name is Joe Grimm. I fear no man. Not surprisingly, Johnson commented, He ain't human, and I just don't believe that man is made of flesh and blood. Of course, he was made of flesh and blood, and he paid heavily later in life with major mental problems, which are almost certainly the result of getting hit in the head a few thousand times too many. In 1907, Johnson had a more legitimate fight against a former champion named Bob Fitzsimmons, the very man that Jim Jeffries had defeated to claim, um, you know, as part of his run to the championship. Johnson didn't see it as a huge accomplishment. You know, he said, the papers have overrated my knockout of Fitzsimmons. He was much too old. But it was still a big deal to knock out a former champion. In 1907, another former champion, John Sullivan, who disliked Jack Johnson, groomed a guy named Kid Cutler to beat Johnson and was very vocal about it. So Johnson wanted this fight. Johnson's manager was against it because he thought that Cutler was not in the same league with Johnson and beating him wouldn't prove anything. But Johnson said that Sullivan would be coaching Cutler and that would attract attention and the press to the fight. In many cases, as I mentioned, Johnson would like to play defense and let some lesser opponents last many rounds. Not in this case. Johnson knocked Cutler unconscious in the first round and then turned to former champion John L. Sullivan and said, how do you like that, Captain John? After winning a couple more fights, Johnson later took a fight to England. He was mostly drunk when he fought a certain Ben Taylor, the best heavyweight fighter that Britain had to offer. Johnson won easily with an eight-round technical knockout. But all along his eyes had been on the prize, the heavyweight championship. 
For two years, Johnson had chased Burns all over the world to get him to fight him. And he would fight any contender coming up so that Burns would have no one left. He said Burns insulted him and called him a coward. Supposedly Burns had said, all coons are yellow. And yet he refused to fight him. Now Burns had done some impressive things. He had knocked out an Irish champion in Dublin in the first round. But he was also down to fighting and knocking out the same fighter three times. So Jack Johnson spent much of his money chasing Burns everywhere around the world, making fun of him, provoking him, saying there's only one way to settle this. Burns' income was kind of declining since there was no serious contender, so nobody would pay top money to see him fight. So eventually he said he would fight a black challenger, but for no less than $30,000, which was an outlandish amount of money at the time. He basically thought he had priced himself out of a fight. In the meantime, Burn had been invited to fight local fighters in Australia, so which was timed so that the fights would take place when Teddy Roosevelt's Great White Fleet, would, uh, which was completely in this journey around the globe, would be in Australia. So they figure it would attract some attention. So in the fall of 1808, an Australian promoter named Hugh, nicknamed Huge Deal Macintosh, called Burns Bluff and put up the money said, okay, I'll put $30,000 and you fight Jack Johnson. Burns was not thrilled to fight a tough challenger like Johnson, but he liked the money more than he disliked the idea of fighting Johnson. Former champion John Sullivan was disgusted. He said, you know, that should never happen. So the fight was set for December 26, 1908 in Sydney, Australia. Johnson had stated, I was never sure of getting Burns into the ring until I faced him inside of the rope. After the fight agreement was signed and our training camps were established, Burns continued his old tactics of sidestepping and making excuses. I expected him to call the fight off any day. On one occasion during the negotiations taking place between the two camps, Johnson and Burns met in person. In attendance was the seven-year-old daughter of the manager of the National Amphitheatre. She really liked Johnson and he loved playing with her. So Johnson at one point got mad when Burns began cussing in front of the girl. He said, Burns, the newspapers are describing you as a gentleman, so be careful what you say. If you swear any more before this child, I shall give you a lacing right here. Burns was outraged, not sur- you know, surprise, surprise, so he grabbed a chair as if to throw it at Johnson, but he was restrained by some of his handlers. And Johnson replied, I'll remember this when I get you into the ring. Another dramatic point in the lead-up to the fight had been their disagreement about who was going to referee the fight. To break the impasse, Johnson asked Burns if he trusted the promoter Macintosh. Now Johnson knew that the two were good friends, so it was no surprise when Burns said, yes, I trust him. It was more surprising when Johnson said that 
then he should have no objection in having him as the referee. Johnson's own manager thought he had gone crazy, but Johnson's actually been strategic. His reasoning was that McIntosh, as an organizer, would want no controversy since he could ruin his name, so he probably would be actually a fair referee, so that was good enough for Johnson. And if the referee question could be solved in this way, then Burns would have one less excuse to avoid the match. So in the lead-up to the fight, Australian newspaper pushed the fairly racist storylines. They kept putting him down in very, with obvious racial stereotypes, but despite this, Johnson was seemingly very popular with Australian women who would regularly visit Johnson's camp. Burns was also not hostile to pushing the racial aspect of the fight. In an interview, he declared, I'll beat this nigger or my name isn't Tommy Burns. Which is kind of funny because Tommy Burns actually wasn't his real name as we saw earlier. Johnson's quotes were way less racist but similarly confident. He asked, how does Burns want it? Basically meaning, no matter what, I'm going to crush him, whether we go whether we want him to get into a brawl right away, whether we're going to have a more strategic fight, I'm going to win either way. In the evenings prior to the fight, Johnson would spend time playing his base fiddle in the hotel. You know, a hotel that was considerably cheaper than the one where Burns was staying, since Johnson was running out of money since he had chased Burns all over the world and spent all of his money. Jack London, one of the great literary figures of this time in history, Jack London was there to cover the fight. He's you know, really one of the greatest writers of his time. He, One of his books that I remember loving it so much, I read it multiple times, Call of the Wild, that's an amazing book. And it's weird because it's normally considered a kid's book, but it really isn't. It's beautifully written. The philosophy behind it is very intriguing. It's kind of a mix of, if you like philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche or you're intrigued with uh, uh, the writings of Robert E. Howard, you know, the creator of the Conan the Barbarian character, London can London's Call of the Wild should be down your alley. It's a really powerful book, beautiful story, written with amazing style. But regardless, let's not get lost into a literature review here. Here, actually, Jack London shows up in a less than ideal light because he was racist as hell. No surprise, considering most people at the time were, but... You, you know, he, these will show up in multiple ways. In, this, in a more mellow statement, London stated, Personally, I'm with Burns all the way. He's a white man, and so am I. Naturally, I want to see the white man win. The local Australian sentiment was very similar. A Sydney newspaper wrote, Citizens who have never prayed before are supplicating Providence to give the white man a strong right arm with which to belt the coon into oblivion. The Australian star stated, This battle may in the future be looked back upon as the first great battle of an inevitable race war. There is more in this fight to be considered, 
than the mere title of pugilistic champion of the world. So based on these quotes, you may begin to understand that a lot more than the outcome of a boxing match was at stake here. In this racially charged climate, Johnson did nothing to ingratiate himself with the audience. In the press, he expressed admiration for Australian Aborigines, kind of a sore topic at that time among white Australians, considering the ugly history of what had happened between them and the Aborigines. They were edified there would be pretty much no black people in the audience, hardly any. Burns was the betting favorite. Former champion Jim Corbett said that he believed Burns would whip Jack Johnson. Johnson was mad that he had no money left or he felt he would have had a great chance at making bank by betting on himself. He wrote, My condition was superb. I don't recall another pre-fight period in my life when I felt better or was more fit to enter the ring. The fight, as I mentioned earlier, was scheduled for December 26, 1908 and was scheduled for 20 rounds. You know, today boxing is typically up to 412. That wasn't the case back then. 20,000 spectators were packed inside the stadium. Many more were in the streets outside. Due to strange local rules about gender roles, women were not allowed inside to watch the fight, so the audience was entirely male and almost entirely white. This, by the way, would be the first boxing fight to be photographed with some decent quality. Johnson was going to get paid one-sixth of what Burns was going to be paid, you know, $5,000 for Johnson, $30,000 for Burns. He was kind of mad about it. And even right before the fight, he tried to argue with the promoter that he was owed more money. The promoter was not a believer in subtlety when it came to negotiating techniques, so he showed up in the locker room with a gun, pointed it at Johnson and told him to get in the ring now or the only thing he would get would be a bullet. So Johnson wisely decided to let the issue drop. When he stepped out, people booed him and yelled the usual racial insults, and Johnson, as usual, acted as if he was above them and he couldn't hear them. He would just blow kisses to the crowd. Smiling seemed to always be his answer to abuse. Kind of reminds me of a guy I knew. He, um, he was in prison in San Quentin in California, and... He told me that when he first arrived, guards were trying to break him, so they would not give him blankets even when he was super cold. They would wake him up around the clock by banging the sticks against the bars. And whenever they would show up by his cell, asking mockingly how he was doing and if he was ready to break, this guy would always force the biggest smile on his face and replied, if you were any better, I would not be able to stand it. You know, it was... Johnson kind of strike me as employing the same approach. The smile was Johnson's weapon against sadness, which was kind of always under the surface. 
It was also his weapon against feeling like a victim. It was the antidote to victimhood. I, I once wrote a line that seems to fit here. I wrote this line that said, answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and raised middle finger, which seems to fit for Jack Johnson who was a walking middle finger toward the popular values of the early 1900s and whose smile was always defiant. Jack London immediately noticed the smile before the fight, and he noticed that Burns looked kind of nervous, whereas Johnson was smiling and was relaxed. So they got into some psychological games before the beginning of the fight. Burns refused to shake hands. Johnson drew attention to the fact that Burns had elastic bandages on his elbows and he wanted to take them off. They both sat in their respective corners and refused to begin. Johnson wanted Burns to remove these bandages and Burns wanted to keep them on. Johnson didn't even know what the bandages were for, but he figured if Burns wants them, then he would mess it with his head if I make a big deal about it, so he tried to get him to remove them. After some back-and-forth arguing, an Australian boxing official ruled them illegal and convinced Burns to remove them. So finally, the bell rang for round one of Johnson's shot at the heavyweight title. That in itself was already a momentous victory for Johnson, because now there was no turning back. Finally, Burns was in the ring now. Finally, a black fighter would have a shot at the heavyweight title. Johnson would do whatever he would take to avoid having this opportunity go to waste. And right off the bat, he started talking to Burns during the fight. He told him, here I am, Tommy. Who told you I was yellow? Yellow being, you know, the idea of being a coward. He very quickly dropped Burns in a few seconds with the right uppercut, which was Johnson's best punch. Many boxing analysts have argued that he had the best uppercut in boxing history. And he dropped him again in round two. Burns started yelling at him, saying, Come on and fight, nigger. Fight like a white man. Johnson said, you know, I'd always I would use nice language to tease Burns, but Burns always was vulgar with him. So he later would write that Eddie killed Burns for the way he spoke to him. He would have been justified. But for the time being, instead, Johnson chose to keep smiling while Burns and his corner kept using racial insults. Johnson didn't return the insults, but he had no mercy in his approach. He didn't just want to beat Burns, he wanted to punish him. He wanted to hurt him and humiliate him. Johnson would point, he would point to parts of his body suggesting targets for Burns, and would taunt him. He said, find a yellow streak. You have had much to say about it, now go on, uncover it. He'd also tell him, where did you learn to punch, Tommy? Did your mother teach you how to punch? What's the matter, Tommy? Oh, poor little Tommy, who told you you were a fighter? The crowd would hear this dialogue. And, you know, Johnson was not above talking to people in the crowd either. You know, he would kept telling people at ringside how easy this fight was and 
what he was thinking of doing with the money he would win by betting on himself. All of this while the fight was going on. Talk about some serious cockiness. Now, most of the people in the audience hated him and yelled at him, which only made Johnson smile more. Johnson didn't want to drop Burns with one punch, making people say that, oh, it was a lucky punch and that he wanted on luck. He wanted to outclass Burns in every round, which of course is a dangerous game, because you can always get caught. Johnson would later say, if I had knocked him out quickly, the public would have said that he was a fluke. When I beat him in a long fight, he gave the other side no chance to talk. The prevailing theories of the day were that black fighters were vulnerable to body punches. So just to make a point, Johnson would expose his stomach and invite Burns to hit him at will. Burnson would do that, and Johnson would smile, seemingly unaffected. At various moments during the fight, when Burns was about to fall down from the strike, Johnson would rush to hold him up and clinch with him. Why would he do that? Because, I mean, technically he could have possibly won the fight earlier, knocked him out he would actually save Burns and hold him up, not because he was being kind, just so that he could have a chance to hit him again and again. You know, these were years of frustration at work. This wasn't a fight. This was just straight-up destruction. You know, Johnson said, I hit him at will whenever I wish. And Burns was just, you know, was like, he looked like an amateur compared to Johnson in the ring. Johnson noticed at one point one black guy in the crowd who apparently copied his moves. You know, he would duck when Johnson duck, punch when he did, and Johnson kept looking at him. And at one point, Johnson ducked really low and the spectator tried to do the same and fell off the fence. And supposedly Johnson laughed and neither Burns nor the spectator had any idea why. Johnson tells this story. Some people think it may be a legend, maybe true, we don't know. In either way, in the 13th round of this match, the police told the referee to check if Burns could still continue. Burns, you know, say what you will, maybe he wasn't the best boxer ever, but he was a tough one. He told the ref to pass the message to the police to just mind their business. In the 14th round, as Johnson moved in to finish him, he dropped him with an uppercut and police stopped the fight and ordered the cameras to stop recording so that no one would see the KO. Burns said the fight was stopped too soon. Johnson laughed. He said, you know, Burns is the easiest fighter I've ever met. I could have put him away quicker, but I wanted to punish him. I had my revenge. There was hardly a mark on Johnson's face. Johnson writes, after leaving my dressing room, I took a plunge in the surf, followed it up with a motor drive, and that evening entertained friends at dinner. Burns would not be so lucky. He would lose most of his earnings at the racetracks in the following weeks. He would never fight an important match again. He would actually end up becoming a preacher, and he would later say that he had been full of hatred in his fighting days. Specifically about Johnson, he said, Race prejudice was rampant in my mind. The idea of a black man challenging me was beyond enduring. Hatred made me tense. 
It wasn't Johnson who beat Tommy Burns, he said speaking in the third person, but Tommy Burns who beat himself. Well, not really true, but if it made him feel any better to remember it that way, so be it. In the weeks to come, Johnson visited the grave of boxer Peter Jackson, a black Australian who apparently had been an amazing boxer but was never given a chance to fight for the title despite his skills. You know, Johnson had now done that no black man had achieved. He was the heavyweight champion of the world. The fact that he had toyed with Burns, smiling throughout their contest, enrages the tractors. An article published about him stated, At Johnson's wreathed smiles occurred in America, a prominent citizen would have inevitably have risen impressively somewhere about the close of the fourth round and amid encouraging cheers have drawn a gun upon Johnson and shot that immense mass of black humanity dead. Man, you can almost feel the like serious hatred in every word. Here they are picturing Johnson smiling, kind of taunting his opponent and he's describing this idea of some white citizen getting up and amid cheers drawn a gun upon Johnson and shot that immense mass of black humanity dead. Wow. After the Burns fight, on the other end, the colored American magazine wrote, Today is the zenith of Negro sport. And the Richmond Planet wrote, No event in 40 years has given more satisfaction to the colored people of this country that has the signal victory of Jack Johnson. Now, think about what that means, 40 years. In 1908, about 40 years later is when slavery had ended. So, this is saying that after slavery, the Jack Johnson victory was the biggest thing for black people. That gives you an idea of how important this thing was, more than just sports. Johnson at this time was 30 years old, and he had been boxing for 14 years. White fans were outraged with his victory, said that it didn't really count. The real champion was still Jim Jeffries, and Burns just wasn't the real deal. You know, Johnson, after all, at 6-1, he had 6-1 in height, he had been considerably taller and heavier than Burns. So they said, ah, he only won because of his size, and, you know, the... All the myths about Jeffries came back roaring in the media. You know, he would still break hands when he shook them. You know, he never hit anyone as hard as he could during his career for fear of killing them. You know, Jack London brought up Jeffries in his report for his New York Herald. He wrote, The fight? There was no fight. No American massacre could compare to the hopeless slaughter that took place in the Sydney Stadium. Burns never landed a blow. He never faced the black man. It was not Burns' fault, however. He tried every moment throughout the fight. But one thing now remains. Now, the one thing that London was alluding to was the very thing that kept hope alive for millions of people who were shocked by the blow that Johnson had struck against the myth of white supremacy. In many ways, 
while Johnson had undeniably beaten Burns. White supremacists were just too shell-shocked to admit that Johnson was the champion, so they kept arguing that, you know, the real champion is the retired Jim Jeffrey, and Burns was never just the true champion, you know, there, there's only one true champion, and that was the man who had retired undefeated not so long ago. So letters began pouring in by the thousands, inviting Jim Jeffries to return and fight again for the racial honor of white people. Jack London articulated this call in his usual eloquent way. He wrote, Jim Jeffries must emerge from his alfalfa farm and remove that golden smile from Jack Johnson's face. Jeff, it's up to you. The white man must be rescued. As far as Jack Johnson was concerned, if Jeffries decided to answer the call and return for the most anticipated battle in boxing history to redeem the honor of the white race, well, he would just be there waiting, ready to meet him in the ring. Part 1 of this three-part series about the life and career of Jack Johnson. Quick piece of news, I recently started a Patreon account, so if you feel in a generous mood, please check it out at patreon.com forward slash history on fire. There are some perks that go with anybody donating, I think, I forgot exactly what level is what, but there are ad-free episodes, there are episodes that you get about several days ahead of the official release on iTunes so there are a few you know there's access to the old episodes that I've now some of the older ones that have now retired like now you no longer find the the 10,000 the duel the crazy horse series so things like that Um, so check it out at patreon.com forward slash history on fire so as I mentioned in the intro Blue Apron has decided to renew the sponsorship for History on Fire for 2018. And this means that you guys will be getting not even just 12, which I wasn't, you know, I was thinking there's no way I can do 12 episodes again. But Blue Apron asked for 15 episodes for next year. Three, I believe, in the month of January. So you guys are gonna get a whole lot of free content thanks to these guys. 
And on top of it, as far as I'm concerned, I'm getting to eat some amazing food all year long, so I am quite pleased with this arrangement. So check them out. Seriously, I can't recommend it enough. This is not one of just, oh, they sponsor the show kind of thing. I really just love, love, love the food they send me. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-fold recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. They have a very wide variety in their menus and allow you to customize it according to your dietetic preferences. So check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Somebody else supporting the show is Mr. Brad Harris from the How It Began podcast. It's called How It Began, A History of the Modern World. Brad, has, uh, he holds a PhD in History of Science and Technology from Stanford University. And check out his podcast. It's really, they are usually fairly short episodes, or at least short compared to Dan Carlin standards or even mine, in the sense that usually you can half hour, 45 minutes, somewhere around there, but they are packed with great content. They are primarily, you know, each ep- besides being very well researched and written very well, each episode focuses on some of the most important scientific, technological, and cultural advancement in history. So anything from, uh, I just listened to one about the evolution of how internet came into being, so that was a great fun one. I checked out one on uh, how the union between wolves and humans led that partnership for hunting purposes eventually led to all the existing dog breeds today. So dog lovers out there, check out that episode. The, the episodes are just really, really interesting. So Brad kind of focuses on topics that will leave you inspired with humanity's potential and he's fun to listen to. So check him out, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever it is that you listen. And check out his website at howitbegan.com. Also, big thank you to my regular sponsors who have been with me from day one. Onnit.com, if you are in the market for supplements, special foods, clothing, exercise equipment, there's no better place to check out that Onnit. If you go to onnit.com forward slash history, you will receive a 10% discount on some of their products. Products are amazing. I use, uh, I mean, the whole catalog is so vast that I haven't even gotten to sample all of them, but the ones I have are really high quality. So check them out. And speaking of high quality, also a great one to check out is Datsusara. If you are in the market for backpacks, computer bags, and any other hemp gear, check out my favorites at www.dsgear.com amazing quality those are pretty much the only bags i ever use check them out 
As usual, a big thank you to anyone who has been using the History on Fire Amazon link. Well, you know, maybe you listen to an episode, some books we mentioned got you excited, you want to get them, please use the History on Fire Amazon link. It helps the podcast more than I can tell you. Thank you also to anybody who donated via PayPal. Even if you're not doing uh, the the Patreon, if you are on a recurring donation at, and you hit the same level as you will get the, the same perks as the people on Patreon. So if you send like, I forgot what it is, I think $10 a month or something, you get the episode ad-free and delivered several days ahead of the official release date. And, you know, I send usually those via email. If you guys are interested in uh, getting more of my voice in your ears, there's a, Dao- a lecture series I created about Taoism. There's a link in the episode notes about where you can get it. There's all over, it's about seven hours of material, if I remember correctly. And there's also a book I've written called Not Afraid. Now, I think I've talked long enough, so I wish you an extremely good day, and I'll get on with my own. <laughs>